Well, we are going to, uh, believe it or not, we're going to finish our foundation series this morning. We have uh, one little section left in our statement of faith and practice that we have been uh, working our way through. And uh, this morning, the last section we have left is called The Sanctity of Life, a subject I'm sure many of us are aware of. But I, I'm hoping uh, that as we have gone through something like this, that you have seen or have been made aware of the fact that we, we often maybe look at those, if I want to call them the theological documents that we have in our, church, in our churches, like sort of the, the, the official things that, I don't know, sometimes we look at them, we, we think it's just, you know, boring, dry, non-applicable, like, stuff that people came up with at lead churches and say, this is who we are kind of thing. But the real life is like down here somewhere. That's really what matters. And we sometimes allow ourselves to have that divide made in us. I'm hoping that as we have gone through these documents, you've seen just how A, necessary they are, and how B, how applicable they are, how much they apply. You know, I'm just thinking through some things that we have just been covering in the last couple of weeks. And it's amazing how much they speak to the exact circumstances we find ourselves in in the world around us. I mean, it, it began, you know, I mean, we could point out to just very sort of directly applied kind of things. Like a couple of weeks ago, I preached a message on non-resistance and it just happened. Kids from Bible school know that nothing like that. It just happens. But it just happens that that was the week that uh, this really unfortunate traumatic thing happened to my sister-in-law. And, and it was done at the hands of a young man that was from the church here. You know, how does that work out? This is not just a theoretical statement that we have that says, oh, this is kind of what we think about God and here's really how we live. But even beyond that, in the midst of, you know, that kind of message we preached that week, and my eyes were really focused on that situation, but we saw at that same time frame this, this massive stuff erupting in our, in, our, our, in our country about injustice and how to deal with that and we're in the middle of this whole coronavirus lockdown, trying to figure out how it'll work, fear versus all this kind of stuff going on. You know, we covered sections like, what does personal discipleship look like? What does it mean for us to have uh, the, the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our specific lives? And, and uh, today, again, I, I, I'm just, you know, we can talk about sanctity of life and maybe for most of us, unfortunately, and you'll hear me talk a little bit about this, but most of us, that, that phrase always gets sort of narrowed down to the discussion of abortion, which certainly applies there. I'm not going to say that. It doesn't. But that's not the only place that applies, right? And, of course, in this scenario, we find ourselves in a culture that is consumed with this whole discussion about which lives matter, right? And here we have a message. We have a little, we have a little paragraph in the end of our statement of faith and practice that's on the sanctity of life. The word sanctity uh, is, uh, means something that is sacred, a sacred thing. Or, in fact, it also refers to the word holiness. Think of the, the uh, overlay between, like, the word sanctuary, that's the holy place, and sanctity. That's, they, they share the same root. It, holiness. So in some sense this morning, the discussion is the holiness of life. Is there anything holy or sacred or set apart or special about life. I'm hoping that, uh, I'm guessing that I'm probably speaking to a pretty friendly audience this morning that thinks very much the same that I do, that, that goes down the same paths that I do. It wouldn't have to be like that. You could have some discussions about this uh, with, uh, with people and they would come out nowhere close to the things I'm saying today. 
So I, I, I'm speaking today. Now, I'm sure there'll be some things that, that we're going to bump into that maybe you're going to uh, say, oh, I, oh that, that kind of hurts. I haven't thought about that. But for the most part, I'm, I'm guessing that what you'll, you'll be in the same place that I am, uh, which my aim, as always, is to be in the place that the Bible is, right? That the Bible is informing us of what we believe and how we act. What we say in that statement, or at least what the first line is of that statement, is that we believe, and this really should sum up our, our, our position on all of us, we believe that God is the author and creator of life. He is the author and creator of life. I would tell you, I think as a matter of uh, just sort of, um, I mean, I would call it no-brainer or kind of a duh kind of statement, but when we say something like this, that God is the author and the creator of life, that automatically means that life is sacred or has something set apart about it, right? You can't, you, can't, you can't separate that anymore. You can't say, well, God was involved in this. He started this. He's, he, he's the creator of it. He's the, the author means that it's his to, to do with what he wants. Uh, you, you can't say that and then say, well, it doesn't matter. It's not important. But we should dig into this a bit. Once again, as we've done over and over and over and over and over again, when we come to this kind of thing and we say, where do we begin this kind of discussion? I think it has to begin way in the beginning of your Bible, in the book we call Genesis, and way in the front pages of the book of Genesis as to what God did when he created uh, the world and everything that is in it. So you know, this is, I'm going to quote, uh, I'm going to put up a verse, I'll just put it up there so you can see it, from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. It's a recounting of, as God created, and it's a more zoomed in recounting because it's, it's zoomed in on what God did when he created us. He created humans. And it says that God uh, formed uh, Adam, he formed the first man from the dust of the earth, and then uh, when he, I'll just read the verse. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. I would tell you, as your pastor this morning, as a guy who, who wants to teach you what the Bible says and to have, help encourage you to live according to what the Bible says and to think rightly about that and, and have your life come out of that, that this statement right here, maybe not enough to say, but certainly I think is enough for us to say that there's something about life. Because when God was that involved at that level with his creation and he made man, chapter 1 says he made them in his image, but he made man, he formed him, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and that, at that moment, man became a living creature. There's something about the life that he passed on at that moment that tells us there is indeed something sacred about it. Now, just to demonstrate to you that it's not just me up here today telling you that uh, when we look at things like that uh, in Genesis, that that means God is really involved in our life and is the author of life and is the one who's responsible for life and therefore it's something we should have respect for, uh, hold as sacred. We read in the book of Job. You know the book of Job is full of all kinds of stuff. We read this quote in the book of Job. This is from Job 33, verse 4. We see that even a long time ago, long before us, long before I came up with words this morning, um, they said something similar. It says, the Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Now, this actually is not Job speaking here. It's his friend Elihu who's speaking. I think it's Elihu. I should have checked. I think it's the right name for the... He had a couple friends that came to visit him, right? And, uh, and it's actually his friend Elihu. Now, most of us think of his friends as, like, not good friends, right? Because they, they, I don't know, they just come across in the book that way. However, there's a lot of... Have you ever done this, by the way? Read through what they say and you think... I remember doing this. I was a pretty young believer, actually, reading through it and scratching my head kind of thing. A lot of things they're saying really sound like what I agree with. 
why does God not, why is he not very happy with them? Well, here's a statement that Elihu makes, and I would tell you, in fact, is a true statement, because he wasn't, he wasn't off base when he said this. He's saying, hey, I want to talk to you too, Job. And by the way, I think I'm qualified because the Spirit of God has made me and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. I would tell you, by the way, that he was actually entirely correct when he said those things. He said, this is, this is the basis for why he has anything to share. We'll get into this a little bit later, kind of loop back, but just kind of tuck this back in your head. This is the basis for why he has anything worth to share with his friend. Now, he, they became a bit misguided in what they said, right? The, they, they came from the right perspective, but the application wasn't always correct. And that, to me, speaks volumes. It should speak volumes to all of us. It should, perhaps, in fact, caution us sometimes. Because the basis from which we speak can be correct, but our application, sometimes we get that a little wrong, don't we? Sometimes uh, what we see is the truth, and we, and we know it's the truth, and it is the truth, and it comes out, and it's a bit misguided. Well, Elihu finds himself place, but that's not the part of the message this morning I want to focus on. It's what he said, because that's true. The Spirit of God has formed, has made, has formed each of us. And it is his breath, it's the Almighty's breath that gives you life. Now think about that. We're going to get to back to this too, but think about what I just said. We know, like physically, biologically, we know that we breathe in, we breathe out. We have lungs. It's the coronavirus. It's a big thing about the lungs, right? So when we can't breathe anymore, that, that life ceases here. But what he's saying here is on a different level than that. I can assure you that when the Almighty chooses to stop giving you breath, you will cease to live. Let's keep going because there's more things we're going to tease out of here. And we went to the Old Testament, so let's all go, also go to the New Testament to see if those writers and the people living at that time had any different viewpoint about this, what we call today the sanctity of life, the sacredness of life. Now this, I'm going to take you to Acts chapter 17. You can turn there because I'm going to read a couple of verses out of it. But just to set the stage, Acts 17, in this section of it anyway, Paul has gone into uh, Athens. You remember how this worked, right? He goes into Athens. He goes around town. He sees all these, these, these statues, all these uh, idols, all these temples made to all these various gods. And he comes to one, and he says, and he sees the inscription, it says, to the unknown God. And Paul being uh, uh, the, the man operating under the wisdom of the Holy Spirit that God has, has, has given to him, he says, hey, I, this is a place where I can slide in with these people. He says, you see this as the unknown God. Let me describe this God to you. Well, here's where he goes. He says in Acts chapter 17, verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, and he quotes, for we indeed are his offspring. Now Paul does something really brilliant in this, that we, I, we went through the book of Acts and I tried to uh, make that clear back then, so I don't have to do it again today, but he's, he's, he's taking what they call the unknown God and said, I'm going to tell you who that God is, and he says, I'm going to in fact point you to the only true God that does actually exist. And this God, he doesn't dwell in temples, he is far too big for that. 
He made the world and everything in it. But he goes on to say, which is the point I want to make today, that this God gives to all mankind life and breath and, by the way, everything. Life and breath and everything. Also, can I just point out to you a little sidestep here, how pertinent these verses are. Look at the very next thing he says. We're in the middle of a society that is just gripped with angst and stirred up with all kinds of passions and hatreds and division about these lives versus those lives and this color versus that color. Look at what he says. And he made, in verse 26, God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the earth. If there is any doubt where any true believer of God should be, it is this. It's answered in this. That certainly, if we're going to talk about the sanctity of life, every life matters to God. I will make the statement that might sound strong, but I don't believe you can call yourself a Christian and feel that some lives don't matter. If the entire crux of my message today is that there's something sacred about life and it's because God created it and it's God's to give and out of these verses I'm telling you to make that point and then I read those verses, that's that verse that says that God made from one man all the people of all the nations across the all, whole world and in him all of us live and move and have our being. I have absolutely no position to stand on anything that might say some lives are more important than others. This, by the way, has huge implications for us. But let's keep moving through the message because I want to share uh, one more thing before we get to a few things I want to have us uh, work through and just thinking through what this means for us or how we work through this. One more verse still. I'm going to go back to the Old Testament because the psalmist says it really well. I'm sure many of you are expecting this uh, passage to be read in a discussion on the sanctity of life as it makes sense. It should be. Psalm 139 is filled with some incredible verses. Uh, the whole psalm is, by the way, because the focus is on the fact that since God knows me intimately, he gets to direct me, he gets to uh, uh, proof me, he gets to uh, show me where I'm not right, and he also uh, wants to lead us in. But I want to zoom in on verses 13 to 16 this morning. He says in verse 13 in Psalm 139, For you formed my inward parts. I'm still making the point that God is the author and the creator of life. Therefore, it gives it sacred, sacredness, gives it sanctity, uh, preciousness, holiness, because of the fact that God is the author and the creator. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. You know what I love about these verses? We always go to these verses when we talk about, uh, about the unborn baby because we point to them, uh, rightfully so, we point to them and say these verses are evidence of the fact that God gives life before the baby comes out of the womb. For in the womb, there's life, and it is formed by God. If we're going to assign that God is the one who, who gives us life and breath and decides when it starts, here it makes it clear that that starts while we are still in the womb. 
But what I love about these verses, it doesn't just stop there. I don't know if you noticed that. It doesn't stop there because it also, when you get to the end of it, he begins to talk about the fact that, God, you know every one of the days of my life before I've lived every, any of them. I don't know how often you stop and think about this, but I think you should pretty often. That God knows exactly how many days you are going to live. In fact, he knew all about that before you were even ever being formed in the womb. This is what the psalmist is saying. Before you were ever even thought of, if I can use that phrase, God knew when your life would start and he knows when it will end. Why I love those verses in this context of this discussion is because it tells us that he truly is the author and creator of life, the beginner and the finisher. And it takes care of us saying we have any kind of role in determining when that begins or when it ends. Because it is his to decide. This is why the psalmist in another place says to teach me to number my days. Teach me to be aware of how many days I have. You already know it, right? You already know it. Help me to understand. Now, if you were paying attention this week, I made a post on the Take Heart blog that I've been uh, making some attempt to make some posts. And I, there's another reason why the psalmist uses that specific phrase there about teaching him to number the days. He's making a comparison, but that's not for this morning. But it does uh, fit in with this. I want to say this at this point then. Hopefully, now I shared just some scripture. We could have shared some more. But hopefully, we have become convinced, in fact, that uh, that God is the author, the creator. He is the one that brings value to life. He's the one that determines the purpose and the value and whether life has value. It's his, not ours. And that's from, we would say, conception. That's from being formed in the womb till the last breath is taken here on earth in our physical bodies. That neatly covers those ends. And I will tell you that for the most part, that's often where our discussion centers on. When we talk about sanctity of life, I already mentioned it one time. We refer to these kind of things when we talk about the value of an unborn baby's life and how it is not ours to snuff it out. We also talk about on the other end of the spectrum that at the end of life, it is not ours to decide that it should now stop. However, as fitting, and it is indeed very, very fitting, as fitting as it is to point out both endposts, I think that should serve to only remind us there's a whole lot of middle in between there, right? And the value of life, because God is the creator and author of that life, is not diminished the moment that the baby comes out of the womb or the six months before that life has ended or the year before that's ended or the six years or the however you want. You get my point, right? There's a whole lot of life in between there. And if I could tell you just frankly this morning, if there's one place I could, I could kind of push us a bit and step on our toes a bit, I've, it is my perspective that we have perhaps done some good jobs at trumpeting the value of the unborn baby's life. Much more work could be done, by the way. And we have perhaps done somewhat of a good job of trumpeting the value of the aged person's life. We probably have not done such a good job of demonstrating that we believe that all of life in between also has equal value. God is very clear in his word when he speaks of the orphan and the widow and the poor and the alien. 
I'm not talking outer space alien, I'm talking someone who's not living in their home country. That those lives matter, those people matter a lot to God. In fact, he intercedes for them because he knows that they're at a disadvantage. He knows that they're not in a place where among most of humans, they're gonna receive any kind of advantage or any kind of preference. You know, I've been seeing, I'm largely, not largely, I'm completely a scroller through on Facebook. I'm on Facebook, I look through it, I check to see what other people are posting. I very rarely, if ever, make any posts myself. Um, And just coming across my feed, you know, I've seen several kinds of sentiments that, uh, as we're talking about this coronavirus stuff, and uh, people who would say, well, you can no longer ever tell, tell me that you care about life or about babies about, or against abortion when you just want to. Now, these are usually politically charged discussions, right? But when you, when, you just, when you want to go out and not care about getting people sick because there's people dying from this and you're just going on and wanting to have life as normal. And then, of course, people respond to that. And my first inclination is, well, you can flip that around, right, and say you can't tell me that it's okay to kill a baby and, and then say it's not okay to kill someone who's older with just as much lack of compassion. But you know the reality of all that? They're both true. You understand how it undermines our position on abortion when we don't care about people who are alive. Just like it undermines there, I'm using us in them language, I really shouldn't, but you know where I stand on this, I think, for the most part. Just like it undermines their position to say, well, we really care about these people who are alive when you're willing to kill babies. They're both true. Because if the point of the message is, that life is sacred. And we just said that God determines when it starts, when they're unformed in the womb, and God determines when it ends. Then it's true for everywhere in between. And we must live life that way. Let me just, if, you, if I haven't been blunt enough for you, practical enough for you. It's one of the reasons in my discussion with people that inevitably comes up when I preach on topics like non-resistance, it's one of the reasons that I always bring up, yeah, we are sometimes, I think, yeah, you know, we take life and, and God, we see that God is behind the taking of life sometimes. I won't back away from that. But are we mindful of the fact that the life we may be taking, the destiny of that life, where those people are going to be spending eternity once we've chosen to snuff that life out here on earth? It's one of those reasons I find it completely incompatible that a Christian can say we should kill all Muslims because they hate us and want to kill us. Are they not a living person? Did God not give them life and breath and all things? It's hard. I live life with you. I'm a human being. I have flesh. I don't like when people want to hurt me, so I want to hurt them back. I don't believe that's compatible with what we've said in our statement of faith and practice, for one, which I believe is based on what the Bible says. I want to talk a little bit about, as we sort of keep wrestling through this, and I want to talk a little bit about some things. And I want to, maybe before I put this next slide up, I just want to, I really appreciate it. I was having a conversation actually over the last couple of weeks because I put in the bulletin, or my hand out two weeks ago when I was preaching on uh, the, uh, uh, the prior one uh, from this series that I'm going to come to Sanctity of Life. And then, of course, we had a week off last week because we had a baptism, and I wanted to preach a specific message for that. So I've been having conversation with Autumn Stevens 
over the last couple of weeks because she's intrigued with the subject and we, we, she was doing some research on it and we just were texting each other and uh, uh, spending some time just on this subject. And the next thing I'm going to put up is something we spend a lot of time talking about. And she actually pointed me to the specific phrasing. That's why I want to mention this here. But it's important for us. To, uh, I'm going to just give us some, a couple of uh, comparisons here. When we talk about the value that, of things and particularly the value of life, it's important to recognize that we can, do, we can talk about value in different ways, right? Things can have intrinsic value or they can have what's called instrumental value. Now, I don't know if you know what those words mean. I'll try to help you understand them a bit. But when you talk about something that has intrinsic value, it has value just because of what it is. Like, it's just valuable. It's it just understood that this is valuable because of what it is. Um, the example in the, uh, the paper that I read this is, uh, is that, you know, we think of love. Love has intrinsic value. It's love and we, it, it just is valuable because of what it is. We don't, we just all understand it, Right? Instrumental value is something that has value, but it only has value because it points us to or leads to something that has intrinsic value. Again, if you want to have an example, the classic example of that is something like money. Money by itself really doesn't have any value, right? I mean, except what people have put to it, I guess. But we value it because it leads to something that we believe has intrinsic value. So, for example, uh, I would say it's misguided, but many of us maybe think that having lots of possessions has value, brings value to life. That, that's what brings real meaning to life is when I have a lot of things. And therefore, money has instrumental value because it helps me get those things. Does that make sense, the, the comparison I'm making? In the discussion of life, I think it's important that we distinguish whether we place, uh, we say that life has intrinsic value or instrumental value. In other words, is life valuable just because of what it is? Or is life only valuable because of what it can lead to, to other things that really matter? Now, you'll see very quickly that this is exactly uh, where, we, where we differentiate sometimes with people who say, oh, I value life. Believe it or not, uh, there's a quote from a Nazi doctor that said that they greatly value life. And you might think, how can that be true? You killed millions of Jews. I'll tell you a little bit what his answer was to that. But do we believe life is valued just because it, of, of what it is? Or do we believe it only has value as it leads to something else? For example... Could you say, if life only has instrumental value, then it only is valuable as long as it brings something else into my life That's, that, 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 really has, that really means something? This is, by the way, how people can say, well, this pregnancy I have is unwanted. It, it, it kind of uh, is not the right timing for me. I can't afford it. It's not what I want or whatever the reason is. And that life has instrumental value. If it doesn't lead to real value for me, then it means I can get rid of it. Or on the flip side, on the other end of the spectrum, I've been pointing to these two goalposts kind of things. So on the flip side, it's what allows people to say, well, that person no longer has the quality of life that they should have. In other words, the intrinsic value they're putting on is a good quality life. The instrumental value is the life itself. So if it no longer meets the quality of life that you think it should, then you can stop it. This is the term euthanasia. I'm assuming you know, thus far through the sermon, that we would believe that life has intrinsic value. It's valuable because God created it, not instrumental value. I would urge you, in light of the, the sort of the place I pushed you just a little bit ago, to assess yourself in all situations as you look at people who are living and say, am I attributing intrinsic value or instrumental value because I would tell you even though we, I clearly defined it for you using the two end posts again which makes sense to us 
You don't kill a baby because you think it doesn't, like it's going to get in your way or like it's, it's just an inconvenience to you right now. And you don't uh, like kill someone who's, who's no longer having the right quality of life because, you know, it's just not worth it for them anymore. We understand that. But how about the way you treat everybody else that you live life with? Are you treating, is, are your relationships with each other based on assigning instrumental value to them or intrinsic value? Because I think you'll find there's a lot of those that we can sometimes slip into the instrumental side of things. We say, well, this person causes me pain and I really don't want that, so I'm going to assume they have instrumental value, <laughs> right? By the way, I told you I'd say this, so I probably should do that. I just about went right on without. Did you know what the Nazi doctor said? He said, we value life so much. He was asked, by the way, how he could uh, have exterminated Jews and said that he's uh, keeping true to his Hippocratic oath, which is what doctors swear to, right, that they should not bring harm to life. He said, no, we value life tremendously. This is a paraphrase, not an exact quote. We, we value life tremendously. And so we've done everything we can to rid ourselves of this cancerous growth, which is the Jewish people. For the sake of all the real lives, we'll get rid of those that we think are not really, are, are a cancer. He said, it's just like a doctor would take when you have a cancer. In fact, he actually referred to this. When you have a cancerous growth in your body, then you get rid of it, right? You cut it out. We say, oh, no, 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 no. But again, I would urge us to take a good assessment of our own lives and see whether we apply instrumental value kind of thinking. The other thing I really want to bring us to, though, is this. This is really, I think, the heart of the discussion this morning. In my opinion, it should be. Over and over and over and over again, as we've gone through the statement of theology, we've gone through the statement of faith and practice, over and over and over again, we've seen that God does things in layers, right? Like there's this layer and there's this layer and there's this layer, and they're all operating at the same time in the same truth. They're all pointing to each other. And many times the things we see in the physical realm are really representations of things in the spiritual realm, right? We see things that are, that, that are, that are true physically. It doesn't mean they're not true when I say that. It just means they're pointing to some greater truth. And I believe in this discussion on life and the sanctity of life. This is exactly the case for us. Look at words like this. When Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45, he said, Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being. We just read that, Genesis 2-7. The first man Adam became a living being. And then Paul adds, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The first man Adam, of course, is the man we actually call Adam. He's referring to him. God formed him from the dust of the earth. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living creature, a living being. The first man, Adam, became a living, physically living being. The last Adam, now who is he talking about? Who's the last Adam? Jesus is. Christ is the last Adam. When he came, he became a life-giving spirit. Right there, Paul says, listen, people. We go back to creation. We know that God created life. He gave, he gave physical life to all of us. The moment he decides we stop breathing, then you're gonna stop breathing. All of that's true. However, he's pointing to something even greater because when Jesus came, then he did something even better. He became a life-giving spirit. Now when we're talking about life, we're no longer talking about our physical, biological, air comes in, lungs expand, heart beats. We're not talking about that kind of life anymore. In fact, Jesus said those words, right? You must be born of what? Do you know how, can you finish that quote? Yes, water and the spirit. First comes the birth through water, then comes the spiritual birth. Nicodemus, you're a leader of these people. How, you don't understand this? How can this be? 
You must be born again. That's where we get that phrase, by the way. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Jesus also said this. After his resurrection, he walked in among the disciples, and he said, peace be unto you. And then he said this. When he had said this, he breathed on them. Notice the parallel, the overlay. He breathed on them, and he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. I'm telling you, as exciting, as sacred, as holy as that first breath was that God gave to Adam and gave us live, uh, living creatures, gave us real life, as, as special and as exciting as that is, it pales in comparison to what God ultimately wants to do, which is to breathe into us his Holy Spirit, to give us true life, real life, not real life. That doesn't make sense. Not biological life, spiritual life, Right? That's what he wants. That's what he's pointing to with all of this. He says, I'm showing you. And notice how many times Jesus did this, by the way. When he healed someone, what was the reason he often gave? He often said something like this, right? But to show you that the Son of Man has the power to, and he referred to something spiritual, he says, I'll do it physically here for you. God did the same thing. This whole story, the whole story of mankind is an epic story of the exact same thing. I'm giving you physical life to show you that I can really give you spiritual life. This, in fact, I think is why we should even doubly so consider life precious. Because the true life is Jesus. He became the life-giving spirit. Let me go to the other end of the book now. We began in the book of Genesis. We're going to go back to the end and go to the book of Revelation to show you how important this discussion of spiritual life is as opposed to physical life. As important as the physical life discussion is, by the way. Very important. But... Here's the reason why. In John's revelation, we're going to go to, to Revelation chapter 20. In John's revelation, he has seen all the wrath of God poured out. He's seen all this epic battle going on. He's seen all this stuff going on. And now we're coming to the end. The end of the end of the end. He's seen the defeat of Satan. He's just on the heels of that. And he says in verse 11 of, of Revelation chapter 20, And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. By the way, think of how, think of, think, think of the magnitude of what we're talking about here. When's the last time you saw the earth fleeing away? Right? We kind of chuckle that because, like, that's ludicrous. The earth is like this solid mass that is immovable, right? The earth and the sky fled away and no place was found for them. How big is God, by the way? How big is I tell you, man, we, 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 can't, we can't just like read through this and say, oh, here's the point. There's so much in his word that speaks to us, that ought to inform us, that ought to give us the right perspective. And here's one of them. It's not the point I'm making, but it certainly is a point that's made in God's word. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small. Doesn't matter who it was. I saw the dead, great and small. And they were standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Second time he said it, which means it's important, right? Verse 14, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And I'm going to stop reading there uh, just so you know there is good news. He goes on the very next chapter, describes the new heaven and the new earth that he's creating for those whose name was found there. But again, that's not the point I want to make because the point I want to make is this. In a message on the sanctity of life, and I hopefully have brought us to focus on the fact that life matters. 
God is the creator of it. I didn't even point out the fact that he redeemed life, that he said it was so important that he's going to send his Savior to redeem life. But that was really to create the second action I'm talking about. Because while there's physical life, you all began breathing at some point. You're alive. You're all going to die at some point physically, unless the Lord Jesus comes back before that. And then you're going to be dead. But in the scene that's painted here, he's not talking about physical life and death, is he? When he's opening up these books and you're going to see if your name is in the book of life, is he looking to see whether you're alive at that point? Whether there's still breath in your lungs and your heart's still beating? Is that what he's looking for? Not at all, my friends. Not at all. He is looking to see if you have received the true life from the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what matters. Notice he's very clear. If your name is not there, then you will go to where death and Hades went and where Satan himself went, which is the lake of fire, which is the second death. Just like you must be born again, there is a second death. And again, we're not talking a physical death. We're talking spiritual. We're talking what's happening with us for eternity, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. It's no accident Brothers and sisters, it's no accident what we have been doing through the series of, of what we believe and what we stand on. You notice we've gone back and forth, right? We've gone to where it began and said, this is the foundation we stand on. We've gone to where it ends and said, this is the goal that we need to keep our focus on. It's no accident. It's very intentional. That's how it should be. We decide what we're going to plant our feet on by how God began things. And we take our focus and say, this is where I'm headed by where we know it's going to end. This is how we live our lives. This is how we must live our lives. Otherwise, we become distracted. We walk away. We, we, get, we get fooled by this. We get talked into this and to that. Who knows what else? But we must always come back to, if God started it this way, that must be what he intended. And where I want to end up, that must be the thing that sets the direction for me. That's where my focus is always going to be. And I say that to you today for the sanctity of life. Life is precious and means something from the moment you start breathing to the moment you stop breathing, which is all God's to decide. And it is important because of what God is really doing in the spiritual realm with your life in Jesus Christ. That's what he began and that's what we're going to focus on. That day is coming for every one of us. Notice it says, they're all standing there, right? Great and small. Whether you're the smallest or the greatest or anywhere in between, you will be standing before that throne of judgment. They will look to see if your name is in that book of life. And your eternal destiny will depend upon whether it is or not. I don't think it could be said any clearer. I don't think there's anything I could say that would make you more convinced that life is holy and sacred and precious. Eternal life, but because of that, also physical life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. It seems to me, Father, it's one of those moments where we have bumped up into the inescapable truth that you, you meant something special and sacred and holy when you formed man in your image. You breathed life into them. They became living creatures. 
we see this giant struggle back and forth through all of Scripture, and we know it's extended beyond the pages of the Bible into our own lives, this giant struggle between what you want for us and what our flesh wants. And all of that, into all of that comes your son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent to be the way, the truth, and the life. That you said not to just give us eternal physical life that we can live forever here on this earth, but that we can have spiritual life, that we might receive the Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee, the down payment of eternal life with you. As we're going through that kind of thinking and, and we're, we're presented with that inescapable truth and we say, oh yes, I agree with that, Father. On the heels of that very quickly, it seems to me that you have great opportunity through the Holy Spirit to reveal to us how we are not always treating every life that we engage with and have a relationship with, every person who has a physical life that we must, by inescapably, we must without any choice consider they also have a spiritual, eternal life at stake, that we aren't always so careful about how we think of them or treat them. How it is so easy for us, Father, to see the mistakes of those out there, so to speak. Or to, to focus solely on the end, the two end posts, if I can use that word. The beginning of life and the end of life. And God, we don't want to not focus on them. There's, there's, there's a battle happening there. We're not going to back away from that. We believe life is precious. Even before the unborn uh, child is, it comes out of the womb, we believe it's precious and ought not to be killed by us. And we believe the end of life is precious. We believe that those people are to be honored in our, by, by us. The ones that have lived long. And it's not our decision to make that they should no longer live just because it doesn't match what we think is giving true value. But we also must confess that it's maybe the easiest for us to forget that it's also true with the person I work with. Perhaps the person I live with. The person I see in the grocery store. The person who lives next to me. The person I go to church with. The person that's part of my extended family. All of those lives, all of those breaths that you gave to them and they point to the greater truth that there's an eternal life at stake in them and God you're forcing me to ask this morning do I treat that life as holy, as sacred as set apart, as yours for you created it, you redeemed it and you want someday for that life to be eternally with you Thank you that you've made all that possible for that to happen through Jesus. We want to continue to cling to him, keep our eyes focused on him. He, again, this is the proof of it. He is the author and perfecter of our faith, which is the spiritual life. We give you praise and glory, God. We want you to have your way in us and with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Why don't you stand this morning? I can tell you...